Welcome to Season 3 of To Be Continued, Troubling the Archive. In today's episode, Namitha Rathnapile and Mylene Briggs are joining in to share their thoughts on the role of spoken word poetry and community making. How does language make us feel connected? How does language alienate? And in what ways does spoken word poetry take up its own creative practice and role in conversations of trauma, longing, diaspora, and memories? Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of To Be Continued Troubling the Archive. My name is Anna Shahak, pronounced she and they, and I'm super stoked to have with us today Mylene and Namitha. Running all the technical aspects of which I have no clue is my friend and colleague Finn. Our episode today considers the work of spoken acts of art. So the connection to language and community and diaspora, specifically in Algonquin territories, um, we're joining in from uh, Algonquin, Ganyagahaga, as well as, Namitha, remind me what territory you're in right now. I'm on the land of the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat people. Awesome. Um, so our episode really today is a conversation, and I always say there's no investigative journalism happening here. Uh, it's us telling stories, listening to each other, uh, and maybe having a couple of laughs along the way. Um, today is meant to be a moment where we lean into stories of you know, creative practices through linguistic um, projects to connect, claim, and uh, attend to home and diaspora. Um, I'm going to ask each of my guests to introduce themselves, and we'll go from there. Namitha, do you want to go first? Yeah, sure. So my name is Namitha Ratmanapule. I use she and they pronouns. Um, spoken word artist primarily. have been slamming for quite some time as well. So I was part of, or am part of the slam community. Um, a lot of that started in Ottawa, um, probably around 2017, 2018 or so. Um, I've been lucky enough to um, perform and slam locally, nationally, um, and I was able to publish a chapbook in 2018 or 19. I probably should know this, um, but it's called Dirty Laundry, and it was published by Battle Express. That's a little bit about me. Awesome. Mylene. Uh, hi, everyone. Um, I'm Mylene Briggs, pronouns she and her. I actually also want to note that currently I'm on the unceded territory of the Tongva, Chumash, and Keech um, nation. And I am primarily an artist, um, a writer, and filmmaker. I'm also the co-founder of two separate arts-based nonprofits, in Our Tongues Reading an Art Series, which was founded in 2019 with um, Sherry Alexander Hines, uh, a amazing poet, and also Art in Action, uh, which was founded in 2014. And that, that was to provide um, free arts-based programming that supports mental health in the community. And I also have a business um, a media production company called Killa Media. So that's been my primary bread and butter for about 10 years. And aside from all of that, I'm also a mother. Just a full plate and then some, basically. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, I have so many questions. So I I am incredibly new to the universe of spoken word poetry. So, you know, Namita, as you're talking, I'm like, I even before we get to anything else, I want some information. So tell me a little bit about, for both of you, what is spoken word poetry? What does this mean? What does it entail? Tell me all. Yeah, I mean, great question. If you could let me know, that would be awesome. Um, yes. Thank you. Finally. <laughs> Yeah, spoken word. <laughs> really, where do I start? There's something about performing poetry that is so much more different than reading it. And like, obviously, both have their their place, and both can be really powerful. But I think what really drew me to spoken word was that element of performance. Hilarious, because I grew up like terrified of public speaking. I would like make myself sick so I could stay home from days where I had, you know, like oral presentations and now I do spoken word. Um spoken word usually has an element of folks sharing like lived experience or, you know, personal anecdotes, which I think can be um what draws a lot of marginalized folks to the art form, this idea of, you know, um less of a hierarchy to to get to make space and to have space for yourself to tell your story. Um, yeah. I mean, also, I think there's the element of slam poetry, which obviously includes like a competition aspect, which, you know, is complicated and nuanced. The idea of, you know, essentially giving points to poetry is odd and complex, but also can be really fun and rewarding. Um, yeah. Mylene, please jump in. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I feel like you you really stated it and you know, I don't I don't consider myself a spoken word poet, so I feel like I might not even have authority to say what it means, but from like listening to it and and really bringing on um like poets and events that like like honor that type of art form, I really feel like it's it's really like a an expression of yourself and you know where you've come from and and being able to like share that in a way that might not necessarily resonate with anyone else other than people who have shared that experience as well. It's not meant to be like palpable for everyone, right? Like so I find it really beautiful in the way that that like it's 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 your voice and it it doesn't need to be for anyone else. It sounds really beautiful. Um, and the other sort of element to it, I and mean, we've already sort of alluded to this, uh, Namitha, when you're like saying slamming, I'm like, Tom, <laughs> I'm I'm visualizing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, this, is this going to be other forms of therapy? Like, <laughs> I mean, slam is its own world of therapy. <laughs> what is slamming? What does slam poetry uh, entail? I'm also what what it's bringing to mind for me right now. Oh my gosh, please don't judge me. But it's like she's all that, and like Freddie Prince Jr. with the hacky sack on stage, and like doing like. Poetry. That's my. I mean, it's like that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, slam poetry is spoken word in like a competitive sense. Like you, so there's like a lot of rules to um, uh, like the time limits and whatnot of poems. So poems have to be under three minutes. 
you know, you can't have props. There's all these um, restrictions. So it's a little bit more um, tight than, than regular spoken word. I think there's like a lot of elements you can play with, like, you know, musical accompaniment or props in, in a regular spoken word performance that obviously you'd be allowed to do. Whereas with slam, it's, it's really focused on that performance aspect and like how tightly you can pack that into, you know, three minutes and 10 seconds of a grace period. Yeah, you can't you can't read from anything, right? Like you have to you have to have it memorized and like Yeah, I mean, I I feel like it's interesting cuz I think that like a lot, I mean, for the most part I would say people usually memorize their poems, at, but I've noticed a shift away not away from that, but I've noticed like more of an inclusion with folks using like their phone or, or a piece of paper. I think there's like the worry okay. that it can deter from the performance aspect because they're like not connecting with the audience. But I've also heard some incredible poems that folks have like read off their phones. So I feel like sometimes it's a testament to someone's ability to just, you know, be a um, an effective performer. But yeah, for the most part, mm-hmm. usually memorize like very scripted, not in like a performative sense, but there's usually like accompanying hand gestures or, um, like practice like measurements of beats and how they're performed. Um, and usually, um, especially at like, um, like national competitions and whatnot, folks will have, um, uh, like a coach for the team. So, you know, these poems are like really drilled down, you know, everything is, um, again, like very scripted, um, which I mean, in and of itself, it's a performance, right? There is that element of, um, planning what is going to be the most effective but yeah at the same time it can totally take away from what draws people to spoken word in the first place which is just like a place to talk about your feelings and your life and feel heard and find community so complex i have a lot of thoughts on it um it still has you know a very um special place in my heart but it is definitely something to unpack for sure what brought you to spoken word as a form? Yeah, um, it actually started out of a class assignment, which I feel like is such a boring story. But I was in a writer's craft class in high school, um, and we all had to pick a style of writing, do a do a, a presentation on it, and then write in that style. I originally chose rap because I was like, oh, this will be a super fun project. And then I was like, I absolutely do not have the skill set for this. I am not going to embarrass myself in front of my whole class. (laughs) Um, So I was like, okay, maybe spoken word feels like it feels similar. Like there's still that element of, you know, like performance and writing in, in, in a sense where it's meant to be heard rather than read. So I found that really interesting. Um, so I was like, okay, this is fun. I'll take a stab at, stab at it. This was when button poetry was really big. So I had a lot of, um, inspiration there. Um, yeah. And I wrote this spoken word piece. I did a good job. I was like very pleasantly surprised by my ability to do it and how easily it came at first. I think I like, obviously there's a struggle with like writing poems and fleshing them out, but I really enjoyed the process and I enjoyed how I struggled with it. Um, yeah, and then I honestly just dove right in. I found any and all open mics in the city. Um, and then I, so I started with open mics, um, got a little bit more comfortable performing. When I first started performing, I was 
so incredibly anxious. I would like not eat for the day. I was like all I could think about, but it was so incredible because I had all this anxiety. And then once I was on stage, I like enjoyed that feeling. I enjoyed like being able to perform this, you know, oftentimes what is really vulnerable writing to a group of people who kind of just get it. And if they don't, there's empathy in the fact that they don't understand. So yeah, I started open micing. Um, actually, my first open mic at Urban Legends, Khalifa, who was the um, then director, um, I think really saw something in me, which I feel like was the push that I needed to keep going and to like really involve myself in the spoken word community. Um, so I started slamming. It was super scary, but I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it kind of just snowballed from there. So I was a part of Urban Legends and I was attending a lot of um, open mics and slams and I ended up competing with the Urban Legends team um, nationally in Guelph at the Canadian Festival for Spoken Word and I ended up directing Urban Legends for um, a couple of years after that just because I was involved it felt like a different way to interact with and navigate spoken word and yeah from there I'm, I think I'm honestly just really lucky that I was able to connect with other artistic folks in the auto community I think Ottawa I like owe so much to that artistic community and the way that it was big enough where folks could thrive and find really big opportunities for themselves to like, you know, progress as artists. But it was also tight knit where everyone kind of knew each other, you know, um, even if you hadn't ever met, you kind of just like, you would like see each other in an event. You'd be like, mm, I know who you are. Um, yeah. And then, yeah, I just, I think I, I was very lucky that I was able to connect with some like really wonderful folks and, and get opportunities that way. And yeah. I feel like Ottawa is one of those places where you just, you know, you keep going to the same sorts of events over and over. And like, even if you're the shyest person, eventually someone's like, oh, I've seen you somewhere or I just, yeah. but it, it raises an important question. I think for me, for both of you is like, how is being in Ottawa, developing a practice or growing in Ottawa? What has that experience been like for you, Mylene? You've talked about, you know, Killa Media has been under a 10 year long project and then having, uh, you know, uh, art, artist, artist run spaces. Um, can you share a little bit more about like what that process uh, has looked like for you? It's a lot, but let's start. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was thinking about this because when you sent over the questions I was like hmm like has has Ottawa influenced me as an artist or has it been more of the people in it and like starting off um in the early years of like of art for me it, it was it looked very different than it does now and I was also using a different medium at the time I was painting um, and I was showing a lot of my work at like places like the Mercury Lounge and like Babylon and all these like different group shows. And even back then, like, I think the reason why a lot of us went that route is because of how uh, gatekeepy the gallery spaces were. And also it was it was really hard to find, um, at least for me, like when I did find people of color, I was like latched. I was like, okay, you're here. Cause the spaces that were, that I was in were like white hip hop guys who like, you know? <laughs> um, and so it felt, it felt like a lot different than it, than it does now. And I, um, and 
part of part of my response, part of the reason why I created these spaces and the way that they look like now is because I was missing those spaces back then. I was I was searching for something that like the community, it didn't have that that look. There weren't any spaces that had primarily um like people of color, for example, like within our tongues, you know, we are we were really committed to having the platform be specifically for black, indigenous, and people of color because all of the poetry events that we would go to were either like white led, you know, very, very like beige looking. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that is how I'm describing white spaces from now on. <laughs> so, yeah. And so we just wanted it to be like more colorful. And, and so I think that, you know, the fact that those spaces were lacking is has directly impacted the way that I move through these spaces and and like intentionally build something that could potentially be what other people are also seeking um, or also need as well. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> yeah, more color, less beige. I mean, the <laughs> one of the sort of thoughts that's coming up to, uh, coming up for me is like as you're talking about the lack of spaces or like having to do the labor of creating spaces that like allowed for black and brown voices to be the primary sort of like that define the space itself what did that look like for you like how did you sustain your spirit how did you keep it going and like in a landscape that really oftentimes does cater more often than not caters to whiteness. There's all of the elitism woven in. There's a gatekeepiness of multiple ways of like not being able to participate fully in arts and cultural events. Um, what, you know, what sustained you? Mm, that is a good question, honestly, because um, even with art in action, so that I started that with um, a few few people in 2014 and it was a lot of it was I think for my own healing um which is what kept me going because I couldn't I couldn't heal in other spaces I had to heal with people who who looked like me who have lived shared lived experiences and so that was like a huge factor in in the motivation. Um, you know, there's so many different things that like you go through, uh, like starting anything, you know, like being part of a larger organization, being part of nonprofits, you know, we, at least for me, it's like before, um, you know, the working world, you'd think of like these organizations as like these like really mystical things that like look like they have their act together that are like super you know like well developed and then you get into those spaces and you're working with those communities and nonprofits and you're like what is happening <laughs> Like you, it's like you've lifted the veil off of, you know, lifted the veil off of something. And instead of treasure, you're finding trash and you're like trying to dig through everything being like, okay, some of this can stay and some of this needs to go. 
And then you put in so much effort to try to like nurture the, like all of those like gems that you found and you get exhausted because you're like, so much work needs to go into like sustaining and building and making it look and feel the way that you believe it should feel like. Right. And, and there's like, not just on the funding side, but then like within your own community, there can be a lot of um, lateral, almost like lateral violence where you're, you, you almost forget what like, or you, you see people that are working with you and, and you're like, the goal of this is, is for it to be a better space. And, and now we're trying to work with, within all this red tape and it needs to like, you know, fit within these boxes and you need to check everything. And then it's almost like that has like veered you off of the path of what your intentions were. And so now you're just working again with these, like the same systems and then trying to almost like persuade your community to be like, this, this can be better. And, and they're like either it's, I feel like there's like always like a a push and pull where if you're not the one who is trying to keep the movement going or trying to keep things like on the right path, like it's very easy for it to go, to go off the, off the rails. And I think what is really important, what I've really understood now is, is even if you have like a core group of people, like one or two or people who are like your solid rock that you can lean on and say, I'm exhausted right now and I can't do anymore. Um, And for them to be like, you know what? You don't have to do anything. It's cool. Like it'll float without you. And if it's float, if it floats and it's messy, that's okay. Let it go. Right. But having the the, like core group of people that you like trust and that like are your sounding board is really, I think the only way that you can make it through these, these systems. (laughs) There's nothing more than like the bureaucracy that exists to just constantly drain um, that I find. And and I, you, I know you mentioned a little bit, like you said funding, but like that itself is like another world of so much gatekeeping, so much dread, like drudgery to have to go through. And a lot of times super daunting, like as soon as, you know, there's nothing more frightening for me than opening a a grant portal to look at the guidelines. (laughs) And then I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to go now. Um, (laughs) um, You're like tired, even just opening it. You're like, uh, yeah, Yeah, that triggered me so much. I was like, ah, opening, not the grant for it all. (laughs) And it follows you into your dreams that turn into nightmares that like just never ending. And it's applications that just don't have an end. Like there's always some sort of stickiness of another moment where you're like, what you need, what, how, what, like, there's just so much of the blocks Mm -hmm. that like, yeah, having a core, you know, roster of folks that, you know, are your do or die who can like help you and hold you when you're just like, I just can't 
do this right now, or I just need to step away for this for just a bit um, and still know that the space will continue to exist for you to return to. And I think there's something about Ottawa specifically. I, I mean, uh, no bashing on Ottawa, but at the same time, like there is this, the, the space for Indigenous Black and Brown folks in the city uh, are in such pockets, specific pockets that like are impacted by those who are coming in and those who are leaving or taking a temporary break of relief from the tensions that exist in trying to maneuver around both institutional relationships, lateral community stuff, like, and, and the more niche you get, the more you know everyone. So there's also the messiness of that. It's like running into your exes all the time, <laughs> everywhere. Wow, yeah, that's, that's on point. I, I think like I, I wanted to know a little bit more though, like as you're talking about these, you know, artist run spaces, specifically thinking about the relationship between art, creation and health. Um, we turn to art for, I mean, Namitha also, you talked about this, like it's an, it's an opportunity for us to find a way to ourselves as well as to make connections and be witnessed by others, right? And in that it grafts a sense of community, even if there's no similar experience by everyone who's witnessing what you're doing. This is like a, a whopping generalization, but like I feel like it's such a slam poet thing to it's like those jokes about like gay kids who were best friends with their English teachers, and I'm like, how did, did are any of my life experiences unique? Like I feel like <laughs> a lot of it is, especially with slam, it's it is that idea of like the audience and being able to make a personal connection with your audience. I feel like with lots of art forms. Even with page poetry, like you're not watching the consumer like consume your art, you know? There is that element of like, you know, you trust that they're gonna take things the way you want them to or interpret certain lines the way you want them to. But I feel like there is that um like autonomy you have with spoken word poetry where like you can, you know, you can change the tone of certain lines, like you can emphasize certain things, um, because you want your audience to to take it in a certain way. Um, yeah, I think that's like, I don't know, such a draw of spoken word, but is also really exhausting, especially when you're talking about, you know, really vulnerable things. That's like a huge issue with slam poetry is that once you start assigning like essentially grades to poems, you know, you're like, what can I excavate out of my like trauma history that's going to get me you know, tense across the board. And that's like an incredibly like toxic um, pattern to fall into. And like, I've seen people like walk off national stages after performing their poems, like crying because I'm like, you weren't ready to share that with the world. And, you know, I, I understand it's a learning process. Like sometimes you just like, don't know until you've done it, but it was like incredibly traumatizing. But I don't think there's enough discussion about what it looks like to write outside of your own trauma like what does it look like to instead maybe write about like resilience or how do you take care of yourself if you are writing about trauma um and what does that look like mm. wow that's huge actually like you're right like i i haven't you know in all of the the slam poets that i know like no one talks about that and and like how to how to heal after you've shared something traumatic and I and even like it reminds me too, like even in the in the filmmaking industry, you know, I I was I was recently on set 
and we were like interviewing this like he's a pretty old man who had like witnessed some like very traumatic things and we're interviewing him and he's crying and everyone's like this is great stuff like keep him crying and i'm the only one being like looking around being like do we need to stop like does he need to take a minute and people and i'm like talking to the producer being like he's crying right now like you know he can't he can barely even like get his words out like you know should we just like take a breather nothing i'm like who who in these like like positions of power or like decision making like haven't even stopped to consider the fact that like after we leave this space who is there to support this person after you know and and across all art forms like the vision of you know someone walking off stage like crying like did the organizers have even a thought that that could happen? And why wasn't there a thought that that could happen where someone could be supported after, right? And and you're right, like the the way that we, the way that we have these like, you know, trauma pulling experiences to, to make like good movies or good poetry is like very, exploitive and kind of disturbing and and like the fact that these conversations are very few and far between is problematic and I think that like especially just like seeing you know knowing that you recognize that it's like oh you'll you'll make it you'll make a difference no pressure on you (laughs) you'll change something like yeah I and and it is like sometimes it can be exhausting to be like, you know, this, that there's no one else who's doing it. Or maybe there, there are other people who, who are creating safer, more supportive environments that like allow for this, like kind of like expression and sharing of trauma where at the end of it, you, you still have someone to like hug you and hold your hand or like, you know, visit you like a month after you've shared that traumatic experience to say, how are you doing? How are you, you know, um, the community aspect is so is so necessary and and we forget sometimes like we forget sometimes like how much more important that part is um, instead of just the the show, mm-hmm. the sharing, the the art art, right? Like yeah. yeah that's that's bringing up a lot for me to meet that okay. Yeah. No, like, it's like I think that it's so complicated because it's it's like this like it's like capitalism like you know like squirming its way into art and our expression, right? Like the end of the day, like if someone's crying, you're like, okay, this is like gonna get more views or more engagement or this is gonna be like shared more widely. And I think like that is what stops people from intervening, right? Like that desire to to still have folks have these like really like emotional reactions is like, oh, well, yeah, this is going to look great. And like, I think also from the artist perspective, like I think obviously there are times where folks just haven't like unpacked or processed experiences like in a way that they've needed to. And then, you know, like emotions come out without them knowing. But I think sometimes like, especially like I can only really speak to sign poetry, but I think that folks 
sometimes capitalize on that. They're like, okay, like, you know, I know that this is something that's going to make me like really emotional. So if I perform that, like it's going to come through and, you know, folks are going to, you know, and there isn't, and I think that that can be really scary, but also it's really sad because I'm like, who taught you that that was the most important thing here to, to risk your own sense of, you know, peace and, and comfort mm. for points? Points. Like, I don't, yeah. I, mm. Yeah, it's complicated and, and weird. And it, I can't help but feel like an entertainer. And I think that becomes very complicated when the entertainment is mm-hmm. actual lived experience. Yeah. And like, you know, what's it called? There's like this, this funny, but also I find quite relevant meme all the time where there's like this guy pointing at all these threads behind him and all of the threads lead to colonialism. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Really though, it's always, it's always the root of it. It's always the root of it. And I'm, you know, as you're talking about like that, the quickest sort of entry point to resonate with the audience becomes through pain becomes through trauma. And I feel like in diaspora, there's always an active state of grieving, even when unacknowledged and unnamed and unaddressed, it just strums in you at all points. And it shapes the way that, uh, like, you know, that we're able to connect with others, and it becomes the primary vehicle through which we connect with others, or we're able to leverage that, because it is that that entry point of like, this is a familiar companion. I know how to talk about it. But then the other end of it is the sharing that both like relies on like feeding the beast of who, uh, of like the audience that wants to know and gobble. And then the other end of it, the exhaustion and the re-traumatization that's happening in the act of sharing all of this. Um, it, it's, uh, it's a bit of like a double-edged sword because on one hand it visibilizes what is invisible um the unsaid uh, the unsaid unspoken sort of pain but then the other end of it is that pain becomes the only way you're legible Mm. yeah yeah like you said like i do think it's important to talk about lots of these things because they are considered taboo there isn't really space made for for a lot of these topics but i think that there needs to be more conversation about how you don't have to process through your art like you can process in your room silently and like work through something and then maybe once you've like you know done a lot of that processing maybe write or or, or create art about it because then at that point if folks if folks you know like poke and prod like I remember I performed like a really vulnerable poem about um a traumatic experience and like I I had done it after I had gotten to that point of healing but I had an audience member like come up to me afterwards and like try to make small talk but it was by asking questions about that experience and I think it I think like there's also just like no audience etiquette sometimes like you need to I think it needs to be very clear that like what people share in that like three minutes is all they want to share and that is totally okay and they're entitled to that I think there needs to be like so much like I feel like there just needs to be like an anti-o training for like audience members and artists because a lot is going on well, by virtue of you being on stage or in front of the audience, it feeds this this audience thing is ready to be consumed, right? Even when you're not on stage, when you're not in presentation mode, that by virtue of you doing the three minutes, it leaves everything open-ended for like probing, 
Uh, and it's so it's it's extractive it's violent it doesn't account for like the person who's like that was it (laughs) the three minutes that's all you're getting um no mysteries need to be unearthed beyond that um yeah yeah sorry to distract oh kitten kitty no no cats are always welcome (laughs) i mean dogs really i'm just especially partial to cats Um, uh, I was going to ask, um, as you're talking about, you know, like pain, trauma, and, and uh, like, um, spoken word as the art form, it's reminding me also of like folks, like specifically indigenous feminists and indigenous, uh, like poets who are really thinking about moving away from like a damage centered narrative, right? There's a scholar, her name is Eve Tuck, and she writes about like, literally like a desire based framework in approaching producing work and in cultivating connections with community. And so much of it is like, literally that you can still talk about all of the crappy stuff and all of the, you know, sad, violent, inequitable positions and realities, but at the same time, that there is room always at the center of the livedness of it, the joy of it. And um, so, yeah, like, you know, if if Mylene's throwing down the gauntlet to Namita for like, what could be, you know, what what could you make possible in the shifts of conversations around this um, is like, what is it, you know, does spoken word exist in the same way if it's not grounded in pain or if it's not grounded in unfleshing trauma? That's a good one. I feel like it doesn't have to be, right? Like, I really don't think it has to be. I think there's such a narrative, and I think that comes from this, like, single-story image of what a spoken word poem needs to be about. But I I have heard, like, incredible poems that have, like, moved me to tears about, like, joy and resilience and about, like, the after, like, post-traumatic event. Um but I don't think there's enough of that. And I think it's, it's cyclical because there's not enough of it. And also, especially again, when it comes to slam, I think like there is such a, such a recipe of like what scores well. So I think people are discouraged from writing like joyful poems that are, you know, healthy and don't, you know, traumatize them because they're like, Oh, this isn't going to win. So I'll just, worry about myself later but outside of, of competition i i'm so grateful for when po- when people do like prioritize those things and and add that to to you know like the canon of, of spoken word that it becomes a lot more common that a spoken word poem can be happy and and be about joy and yeah does language factor into it? Like, um, you know, when you're when you're doing work, um, and I oftentimes like if you speak more than one language and that language is not English, uh, the translation to English sometimes doesn't the words don't have enough meatiness to convey the feelings that might exist for the ancestral languages that we carry with us. Um, do you find like a challenge in sort of bridging those gaps between like you know your visual production, Mylene, and and like trying to bring these thoughts and feelings onto the visual realm, but also Namitha into your, your oral practice, into the spoken word. Um, I could talk shortly about language if that's all right. I, 
think that I actually really appreciate when there are poems that are actually, this is like kind of a tangent, but that are not in English or like large parts of them are not in English. And I like, I think this kind of comes back to the idea that in the ideal spoken word space, that even if you can't relate to the experience that's going on, that there's still empathy for it. So when I've heard poems that um, include a lot of someone's, you know, first language or ancestral language, and I don't understand any of it, I think there's some beauty in that inaccessibility that it's only mm-hmm. really meant for the people that can understand it. Because a lot of the times, especially with spoken word, where so much of it is about performance, like you can understand the gist of what people are trying to say or the emotions that they're trying to convey. And you don't actually need to know um, all the words to to understand that or to appreciate the poem. So yeah, also English sometimes just doesn't cut it. Um, I think most people who speak another language absolutely know that, especially like an old language. I think people know that English is a baby and compared to these like incredibly like rich languages that we were raised with. Um, so yeah, I love when I don't understand a poem at all, but I understand the feelings. Mm-hmm. I think that's one of the things that like that um, I found frustrating when it came to writing is like who made these rules like it's it's you know like the thread goes all the way back to (laughs) 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 you're like why am I gonna write it this way and you know someone decided that this is the correct way to write and I have you know I have some some really dear friends who like are like majored in, in English and have like done you know incredible things for like the Canadian lit, but I just like, I'm often, when I am in conversation with them, sometimes, you know, they're, they're like discussing like a certain piece or, or like they need to like, you know, find the why to like this, this poem and like this, the poet is like long gone or it's like, um, it was something that, you know, potentially was written on like a, a scrap piece of paper and now they're like trying to digest it and break it down. Like, why did this person write this? And, and like, can't it just be for the sake of writing? Like, why are we trying to, why are we trying to put meaning behind something that like this person cannot even share, you know, their own meaning behind and then like use that. And in this, like, what I feel sometimes can be like really inaccessible institution, universities or whatever colleges, and then grade people on how well they can, you know, break that down and then, and say they're like a, like a a master at the language, which again, going back to what Nimitha says, it's a baby language. And so we're using this like baby language to like, communicate in ways that like that often there's no deeper there's no deeper way to say it and so you just end up being like like saying the most surface level thing when really you can almost be like in conversation with someone and be in the space and be sitting there and be like I feel you you don't have to say any words I just feel this yeah you know, I'm, I'm sitting with that, but yeah, 
definitely there and that it exceeds the language like if the if the intention is to move through emotion through the way that you convey that that it is as the audience how receptive are you to to that rather than to be satisfied by knowing all the answers of that moment yeah sorry he just like went right off to the camera it was just a loomy's face <laughs> chat meetings for the win <laughs> oh, so cute I love origin stories. I, I say this frequently and I think like um, for a, a, a sort of space like Ottawa and when you're creative and you're developing a practice or already in the field, um, paths cross. And I'm wondering how the two of yours paths crossed uh, along the way. If you remember the origin story or if there's a new one to be made. In our tongues. Um I credit, I, well, I definitely credit Sherry for sure, but I feel like um, I really started like um, knowing about Namitha through like the internet. It was just like, oh, there's like, you know, something she's sharing and through like other community members that I know who are also friends with you and then cross sharing that and then, you know, Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> probably i know i think this is like exactly what i'm talking about uh -huh. we're like ottawa folks just know each other like the origin story is just uh -huh. ottawa sometimes it's just like being in the same spaces being like i know you you know me yeah but i will say i remember um this was early 2020 i think like you know start of covid there was an inner tongues show um that i was a part of and this was right after an awful online performance or an online event that i had hosted with urban legends um this was again like early early covid um so zoom events were like really new folks didn't really know how to ensure um like privacy but zoom so this um urban legend show that i hosted was zoom bombed and it was like really really awful like these folks showed up and were like and like i was the face of this event everyone else had their camera off and it was just like really bad like um super super traumatizing and oh, no. um the next show that I had on Zoom was within our tongues. And and again, this was like very soon after the show. So I was just like really shaken up. I just like really didn't trust. Um, it's not that I didn't trust people, but I just didn't trust that like Zoom was like restricted enough with these online events. And I was just scared of something like that happening again. Um, and I think this to me is a testament to like Ottawa community just in general when you find the right people. And, um, I was talking to my friend Wake about the inner tongue show and I was like, Oh my God, like, this is exactly what I needed after that show. Like I felt so cared for. Like I, I was like the whole time I was just like waiting for the other shoe to drop for like something to go wrong and like to, to expect that. And it, it didn't, it was like such a like 
slow and relaxed and like calm show. And I was telling my friend Wake about this and they were like, oh yeah, I talked to the folks in our towns and I was like, listen, Namita had an awful experience on Zoom. Like I want to make sure that doesn't happen. And it's like totally not that I didn't trust that Intertongues would like do an incredible job, but I was just like extra on edge. But I think the fact that like already, of course, like Filene and Intertongues folks are like incredible people. But I think also the fact that like, I didn't even know that Wake was in my corner doing this work. Like they told me after the fact and the fact that they did and like didn't clearly were not telling me to get anything out of it. Like they told me afterwards, like in passing um, to me felt so, like I felt so incredibly cared for. And again, it was like not something I had to ask for. It was just like assumed that, yeah, that like this thing happened. Like let's make sure to like keep our own safe. And yeah, I don't know. It's, like, such a special memory to me, honestly. So, yeah. That makes me feel so good. Yeah, I'm so glad that you felt, um, that you felt cared for. It's really, it really is, like, one of our, like, mandates. Like, it's, it's really important for us to not be the, you know, the aggressor or, like, you know, and, and to actually like be very, very intentional. Um, and I think a lot of that is, is also because of like experiences of, of other spaces that we've been in, but it just, that makes me feel so good. I'm so happy to hear that. And, and we love that show. So (laughs) also this is what happens when people of color run things. things (laughs) Wow. Things like things do not like zoom bombing do not happen. Like, you're cared about, you're cared for. Yeah. <laughs> there's follow through, there's mentorship, there's support. Yeah, there's check-ins. Yeah. It makes a wealth of difference, really. Oh, it absolutely does. Yeah. Um, I think we're getting close to that time of wrapping up. Um, but I wanted to, first of all, thank the, the kitten for making an appearance. <laughs> they're both there just, yeah. so that's Halumi who made a little guest appearance so that's Paneer uh, just for, for folks listening in Halumi <laughs> and Paneer are both wonderful cheeses <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to thank Mylene for joining in from a different time zone appreciate it uh, Namitha for taking time um, it's a pleasure to like hear both of you speak of your work and I'm also excited to see what other creative ventures you're both involved in and maybe cross paths like passing cross passing cross no crossing paths <laughs> we get it you know what English is stupid we are it all comes back to yeah. colonialism <laughs> English oh my god um, <laughs> but this has been so lovely and I think you know sort of the takeaway that I'm going to leave the episode with is really thinking about what does it what does it take and what does it mean to be in relation with each other from a place of joy from connecting and trying to make communities to sustain ourselves and the only way we sustain ourselves are with the people and the, the communities we align ourselves with because otherwise it's <laughs> quite bleak um, it's quite it's quite draining um, but yeah, I want to thank you so much for, for coming oh, on board for this, this conversation. Thank you so much for having us. To be continued, Shoveling the Archive is hosted and produced by Anu Shahak. Technical support for the show comes through from Spin Sun. 
A major thanks goes to Hunter Delache for their wonderful work in creating the logo for the series. The intro and outro are commissioned works by artist Chris Buckle-Binkowski. The show would not be possible without the support of QAG and the Canada Council for the Arts Digital Now Grant.